look, the Fed's human beings. And right mm -hmm. now, Jerome Powell is probably going to go down as one of the worst, if not the worst, Fed chair. He does not want to make the, let's call it a mistake, mm -hmm. of allowing inflation to do what it did in the 70s. And he's paying very close attention to where inflation appeared to be tamed, but then it came up for a second time. Mm -hmm. That was Fed chair Arthur Burns before Paul Volcker. But it's also a mistake to tighten too far, right? So mm -hmm. he's looking at, I don't want to make this one mistake, and I'll be more likely to make the other mistake than the same mistake. So I'll make a new mistake instead of the same one. Both are bad. But what it seems is that he is determined to not pay attention to the things we discussed on this call, how CPI is rolling over, how inflation is tame, how we're seeing these slowdowns, what is keeping hmm. the consumer alive is wearing off. He doesn't want to pay attention to those. He just wants, does not want to be, make the same mistake twice. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. 
Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Barry Habib, welcome to the What Is Money show. Robert, I'm so glad to be with you. It's great to have you, man. This has been a long time coming. Uh, our mutual friend Tim introduced us. And just by way of quick introduction for my audience, you are the CEO of MBS Highway. You are the three-time Crystal Ball Award winner as the most accurate forecaster on interest rates in the U.S. housing market. Quite the accolades there. Um, sometimes known as the guru or the goat, and you get a lot, a whole lot of media exposure um, for your prescience in these areas. Um, Maybe we could start, Barry, with just like a you giving a quick overview or, or synopsis of your career uh, that brought you up to this point. Well, thanks. Uh, again, thanks to Tim Brahim for the introduction. Tim is uh, awesome. And Robert, it's such an honor to be with you. I'm a big fan of everything that you do. So started off uh, in, uh, interestingly enough, a stereo business, but it gave me a lot of upfront exposure because I'd hustle stereo equipment out of the trunk of my car. And I thought you want to talk about cold calling and meeting people, right? So um, so that was a very good start. Then uh, I jumped into the mortgage business and real estate investing, had a very successful career, opened a mortgage business and did well with that, uh, but, but gave me some ideas. And I, I thought about the way people did mortgages and they didn't really look at the financial markets. And I always loved the financial markets. And I kind of had an idea to teach the mortgage industry uh, about the financial market. So how to business built it, sold it, was uh, kind of ubiquitous within the industry. Um, did some fun things. Uh, did Rock of Ages, which was the 27th longest running show on Broadway and Chris Angel. So I've done some theater, had a medical imaging business. So it gave me a kind of a look at the economy in many different ways. All these businesses were, were built nicely, sold them. And then got back into... Um, uh, helping the mortgage industry with MBS Highway. I've been a professional speaker for more years than I want to admit right now. Boy, it's like 30 years. So um, <laughs> get to talk to a lot of people. You know, Robert, when you talk to people and when you listen, um, you tend to learn a lot as to what's going on. You know, each person is kind of mm -hmm. like a book. And if you take a page from their book, your book just uh, can really, really grow. So I've always tried to do that. I've always tried to learn from others and listen and, and really trying to get the pulse of what is going on. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what's helped us, I believe, in seeing turning points and inflection points a little bit sooner because data is important and critical, but data is old. Mm. So, you know, data is like driving a car, but looking in the rear view mirror, kind of what the Fed does, right? And they admit to be data dependent. I think when you're driving, it's best to look through the windshield. So uh, these things have helped us. And at uh, and MBS Highway, we help mortgage professionals understand the market, understand the real estate market. We help real estate agents as well. Um, look at every market in the country and see where's it going, where's the opportunity and, and dispelling mm. a lot of what's in the media they have a very negative bias towards it because that's what gets eyeballs. Mm. Yeah, great points there. I love this idea of just incorporating perspectives from others, right? It's it's so key to learning. And ultimately, I think even psychologically, that's what we are, right? We're kind of a composition of all these personalities that we've interacted with. And we, we pick up hopefully the good things from others and try to discard the less good things and um, constantly enriching the amount of perspectives we compile is actually what makes us better at whatever we're doing. And so it reminds me of that quote that the, this is like a Navy a sea captain. I think he said, he said the job of the captain is to see the ship through the eyes of the crew kind of thing. Like you want, you want to assimilate multiple perspectives is that, has that been the key 
for you and in, in becoming the, the most accurate forecaster on interest rates in the U.S. housing market? I mean, that is quite the title to live up to. Has that been kind of the grand theme that, that got you to that point? So this it's certainly a team effort. We have amazing people here at our company that we all contribute to that. I think we just have a different way of looking at things. We don't take things necessarily at face value. We like to dig very deep and we don't try and take anything at, you know, what it's positioned as we want to understand and make sure it makes sense. You know, there's, mm. uh, and, and don't give others like too much credit. Don't just take what people say at face value, make sure it makes sense to you. So that's mm -hmm. the attitude that we have is it has to make sense to us in, in, in piecing parts of the puzzle together. You know, a good example of that is just recently we got this jobs report. Now, the jobs report is very, very important because the stock market's going to trade off with the bond market's going to trade off with and monetary policy. And overall, the way that the economy looks is, is the health of the jobs market, mm -hmm. right? And it looked like it was a blockbuster report. It was 517,000 jobs. And people will take that at face value. They also saw the unemployment rate drop from three and a half to 3.4%. And oh, wow, this is the lowest rate that we've seen in multi-decades. So is it really that strong? The answer is no. And that's why you have to dig deep. And I think that's what we pride ourselves in trying to discover what it is, because there's little nuances within the report that the media never covers hmm. and analysts don't dig that deep. So when you dig into the report, there's two real reports within the jobs report. One is it's the C it's called the, the business survey. And the business survey is interesting. I mean, think about the daunting task, right? Here you are the first Friday in February, you've got to see in the United States, you know, 160 million people roughly in the job force, how many of them were unemployed, how many created jobs. It's, it's impossible to do. So they rely a lot on modeling. The models that they do have tremendous flaws and very often fail to capture points of inflection. One mm. of them is called the birth death ratio. Mm. So the birth death ratio, it sounds ugly, but what it means is the birth of businesses and the death of businesses. They take the net of the two and assign a value to the estimated amount of employees for each of these businesses. And it comes up with the amount of jobs created. Now get this, Robert, for the month of January, it showed we lost two and a half million jobs, two and a half million. So how do we get to 500 million? Something they call a seasonal adjustment. I say, well, mm -hmm. In January, you usually lose like 3 million workers from you know, holiday hirings and weather changes. So we're going to say we should have lost 3 million. We only <laughs> lost 2.5 million. So we gained 500,000. We didn't gain 500,000. We lost 2.5 million. We made a journal entry correction to make it look like 500. And I bet you that most people listening to this have never contemplated that this is what is being done to us. Okay, This is, this is the stuff we're being fed thinking we got 500,000 jobs, but it gets worse than that, okay? Um, let's remember that temperatures in January are much higher, except for Buffalo, okay? But that's not a major market. So when you take a look at, you know, there's factors that should have been negative seasonally, but they really weren't because we didn't have the typical cold temperatures. So you should not have made that seasonal adjustment. Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. Now it gets worse because the unemployment rate comes a separate report, which is called the household survey. Now, the household survey, this is where you get about 60,000 calls and where they reach out to individuals. Hey, are you working? Did you lose your job? This and that. So it's mm -hmm. an actual survey as opposed to modeling. The survey that they do showed, according to the bottom line, it showed 894,000 job creations. 
wow, that's why the unemployment rate went down because mm. it's according to the survey, except for one little thing. They did something that's called a population control adjustment. <laughs> Sounds like it should be in a sci-fi movie, right? Population mm. control. What is that? For the entire year of 2022, what they discovered is they picked up some perhaps illegal workers or this or that, and they made it all as a catch-up in one month of January of 2023. So we, we didn't create 800,000 jobs in January of 2023. Perhaps <laughs> in the earlier part of 2022, they might have picked up some workers. They just lumped it in. If you remove the population control adjustment, we only, can, we only created 84,000 jobs, and the unemployment rate would have actually went up. Damn, that's the truth. That's real. But people don't get the benefit of seeing this stuff. Now, there is something that's a good report, I think. It's the ADP. ADP measures 25 million payroll records. Now, granted, it's not going to take like small businesses that don't hire a payroll company. I get that, okay? Mm -hmm. it, none of these are perfect. Mm -hmm. But 25 million records, that's a lot more than 60,000 households being surveyed or these birth death models that are right. not reliable with adjustments they showed 106,000 job creations. That's a lot more in line with that 84,000. So when you start to piece the puzzle together, did we really create closer to 100, maybe 150, maybe 75,000 jobs? It's probably the real number, but in no way, shape or form, is it 500,000? Right. But yet the markets react to it, the Fed responds to it, and policy is made because of it. And that's why we have boom bust cycles because policy is oftentimes looking at the wrong things. Wow, so much beneath the the proverbial surface there with that, um, and these the arbitrariness of these metrics. I mean, it reminds me of CPI when we look at a lot the hedonic adjustment, where you know they'll they'll basically adjust for the quality of the items that are in the basket of the the price changes being measured, and it just I mean once you when you compromise the comparability of these metrics over time, like you were describing, I think this was the population control adjustment. You said that they just lumped all these changes over the past year into one month. I mean, you, you that kind of destroys the purpose of the metric in the first place is to be able to look at that common denominator period over period and see, is it up or is it down? And it introduces this um, opportunity for, politicians to just kind of manage to whatever the the narrative or agenda is so you're so right and it's very wise of you to recognize the hedonic adjustments in the inflation report because you know, for everyone that's listening let's just explain that to you so what robert's saying is if, if you were to take a vehicle and let's say that vehicle went up five thousand dollars in price uh, no, not according to the way we do it in inflation. <laughs> we might say that vehicle went down 3000 Well, I'm paying $5,000 more. Why did it go down? Well, because mm -hmm. now it includes GPS. Now it includes Bluetooth. Now it includes right. whatever features that you would have normally had to pay extra for. But through the technology, we were able to give you those. Maybe I didn't want those. Okay. Yeah. But it's a hedonic benefit. So therefore, it's a hedonic adjustment. And it suppresses the actual increase in cost that you're paying out of pocket. That's right. Yeah. Perfectly said. And um, I, I just, the key point is like, we, they're always saying, pointing people to the data or to the numbers as if there's some hard objectiveness to them, but this, this arbitrariness that's introduced to the composition of the metric itself compromises that, that entire idea. So I think it's really important for people to understand that you can't just say, look at the 
people want to say, look at the science or look at the math or the numbers of the numbers, but the numbers aren't always the numbers in this domain. Um, speaking of CPI, let's talk about that because the jobs report, and we're recording this on Valentine's day, 2023. Sending um, everyone a lot of love, by the way. <laughs> sending everyone a lot of love. The jobs report, as you just highlighted, had a lot of bullshit in it with these, um, these metric adjustments. The CPI print came out recently as well. Can we talk a little bit about that and how that's impacting rates? CPI is the most important of, of the reports that we get. So there's there's let's understand how inflation is measured. So inflation, you take a basket of goods and services, you measure the change month over month and then year over year, and that's how you get your inflation rate on the year over year basis. So it's important to understand this. There's two measuring sticks here. One is called the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, and then there's the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditures. Now, the Fed has said that they kind of prefer the personal consumption expenditures. I don't think that that's the right way to go because it has less of a weighting for out-of-pocket medical expenses and shelter, which are important. Also, one benefit of the personal consumption expenditure PCE is that it allows for substitution. So maybe a smart shopper might say, hey, you know what? The price of cantaloupes went through the roof. So maybe I'll substitute honeydew melons. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like that. It doesn't keep the hard basket, but I don't like the fact that the waiting for housing and shelter um, as well as out-of-pocket medical expenses is less of a waiting because people really do feel those things more. Okay. So pick whichever one you like. The benefit of CPI is this. It comes out about two weeks earlier than PCE. So the market will react to the CPI. Uh, so if you're trying to figure out which way is policy going to be set, which way is the market going to react, look at the CPI because that's the one that will give you the advanced notice. So I think it's it's a more important report for us to look at. Certainly the PCE is important, but it tends to be almost yesterday's news by the time it comes out. Mm -hmm. So CPI, Consumer Price Index, two important measurements that there are is the headline number, which includes essentially everything. And then there's the core rate. Now, the core strips out food prices and energy prices. Now, a mm -hmm. lot of people might say, well, you know, what, why would I do that? Why would I strip? I need food. I need energy. And they scoff at that. But here's the reason. And it actually makes sense. The Fed wants to look at something that they can have influence over. Mm -hmm. you know, bird sickness causing egg prices to go up. I can hike rates if I'm the Fed or cut rates. not going to change that. OPEC lowering production increase. Fed hikes and cuts won't impact that. Uh, weather conditions, which could drive food prices... The Fed's not going to influence that. So they take those things out and they look at what can I influence with monetary policy. And that's the core rate of inflation. So if we focus on that for a minute, this is really important because long-term rates do not follow the Fed. They follow inflation. And I'll explain all that. So here's the proof, first of all. In the last two months, two and a half months, you've seen the Fed hike rates one and a half percent, but mortgage rates have come down one and a quarter percent. Fed hiking mm -hmm. a lot, mortgage rates coming down a lot. And I'll tell you where mortgage rates are going to go. Now, this is really important for us to understand. So it's not the Fed. What is it then? It's inflation. And, and here's the easy way for us to understand this. Robert, let's say you're nice enough to give me a mortgage. And I make a monthly payment to you that's a fixed payment of 2000 bucks a month, just to make it simple. Okay. And you're in the business of doing this. This is what you do. So if inflation is, you're getting $2,000 a month every month. This month, you get a check for $2,000, and you go out and you buy a shopping list of goods and services. Next month, you get everything on the same list. The following month, maybe you get everything on the same list, but you realize over time, you probably have to start leaving things off because inflation will begin to erode the value 
of that payment that you're, you're the payment still says two thousand dollars but right. every time it just doesn't feel like what two thousand dollars used to feel like purchasing it's power is going down yeah bingo bingo if inflation is very low like it was you know a year and a half ago then your your purchasing power erosion is is very minimal so you could afford to offer a lower rate hmm. however as inflation rises the erosion happens much more rapidly and severely in compounds you can't do anything about the loan you gave me because I'm already done. And you mm -hmm. don't really care because you've sold it. All mortgages get sold. Mm -hmm. But on the new mortgages that you're going to do, in order to create value so you can then sell them, you have to contemplate the more rapid rate of erosion of the buying power of the fixed payment due to higher inflation. You can't control inflation. You can't do anything except one thing. Your only defense is that you could charge a higher rate, which puts you on a higher perch that mm -hmm. then offsets the more rapid rate of erosion. And that's why when inflation goes up, long-term rates everywhere, not just mortgages, long-term, they go up. When mm -hmm. inflation comes down, long-term rates come down. It's odd, but Fed rate hikes, if they're deemed to be curbing inflation, mm -hmm. actually cause long-term rates to go down. Mm -hmm. Early Fed rate hikes, if the Fed doesn't yet have its arms around inflation, then you'll see inflation, the rates, long-term rates move up along with those Fed rate hikes because the Fed hasn't done enough to curb inflation. Once the Fed gets its arms around inflation and, and then you see inflation start to come down, long-term rates come down. And that's exactly where we are today. So more that's Fed right. rate hikes will only cause long-term rates to come down faster. Hmm. Interesting. And is that always, does that deterministic relationship always hold or is that just kind of the, the typical? That's, that's, that's pretty much a law. I'll, I'll, is, is it okay if I share my screen and show a yeah, couple of slides do. on that too? Please do. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just bring up some a couple of slides here. And I I think it's very, it would be very, very good for people to see this. Okay. This is a chart on the bottom line here in pink on the left, where you see the rate of inflation. And these are 30-year fixed rate mortgages. And yeah, we'll just go back for, for five years or so. And you can see as inflation rises, so do mortgage rates. As inflation subsides, so do mortgage rates. Inflation goes sideways, so do mortgage rates. Even this little blip here resulted in a corresponding blip in mortgage rates. Now, we had the recession. People forget there was a recession before COVID-19. Two months ahead of the COVID, you had a recession. So double whammy, financial crisis between the recession and COVID lockdowns. What did the Fed do? The Fed not only cut rates, but what they said is now we're going to buy the bond market. We're going to buy enough mortgages to drive mortgage rates to roughly 3%. Here's 3%. And during the QE, quantitative easing period, look what the Fed did. Now, it was fine when inflation was zero or at 1%. Mm -hmm. mortgage rates were low. But as inflation started to move much higher, very rapidly, the Fed told us it was transitory. They missed the boat on this one. <laughs> and they later admitted, they said, we now know how little we know. And we now understand how little we understand about inflation. That was the Jerome Powell quote, word for word. Mortgage rates should have moved up, but they didn't because the Fed continued buying the mortgage market. Once inflation really started getting out of hand, the Fed signaled that they were going to stop. On the signal alone, mortgage rates started going up. And then once they stopped buying, mortgage rates did what they always do, follow inflation. Inflation up, mortgage rates up. Last summer, when the, when the um, rate of inflation took a little bit of a dip, so did mortgage rates. But then in the fall, mortgage rates moved up because inflation moved up. Mm -hmm. And then starting with the October inflation data, which we had on November 10th, by the way, we called that back in June, said it was going to happen. And I'll show you how you can forecast mortgage rates and long-term rates, by the way, in a moment. We saw inflation come down, and since then, mortgage rates have come down, all at the same time here while the Fed's raising rates.
you know, and Robert, you, you know this, right? What's inflation? Inflation is just too many dollars chasing too few goods. That's inflation, mm-hmm. right? So what's the Fed's role? The Fed wants to limit the amount of dollars out there. So then the, hopefully they don't confiscate our money, but they can deter us with credit. Think about somebody who had a home equity line of credit, right? So seven months ago, their payment might've been much less than it is today. So they didn't take out more credit, but now if they're on a fixed payment income, in other words, they're getting a salary, mm-hmm. more of that salary has to go to servicing the debt, which leaves less dollars to buy other things. In addition to that, new loans, new loans for businesses cost a lot more. So they discourage that. Here, here's a great example of, of that. So a, a new car six months ago, how much is it? $60,000. How much is the payment? 600 bucks a month, because that's how we buy things. I'll take it. So somebody gets the keys. Do they pay any money? No. They just sign and drive because someplace somebody's making magical keystrokes at a bank and poof, $60,000 appears. Multiply that by 5, 10, 15 million cars and you get hundreds of billions of dollars that are now into the, into the economy. And this is just more money chasing fewer goods, creating inflation. Mm-hmm. So now here we are six or seven months later, the Fed's hiked, hiked, hiked. So now the neighbor seeing that nice car in the driveway says, I want to go get one. They look at the same car. It's the same price, but the payment's not 600 bucks anymore. It's a thousand dollars. So that neighbor says, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll keep the car. I have a little bit longer. So they don't buy the car. There's no magical keystroke and there's no poof, $60,000. And that's how the Fed fights inflation. So by discouraging it, they hike rates and there's less money out there. But you can also get rate of savings today, which you could before zero rate of savings. I'll spend it instead of saving it. Today, I get a good rate in savings, so I'll save it instead of spending it. Mm. And because the the supply chain and China's open, we have goods. We have more goods. In fact, look at inventory levels. Inventory pre-pandemic on shelves, shut down. China shut down. Everything's open. We got more goods. on. That's why you get sale after sale after sale. And, and, and if, if it's okay with you, I'd love to teach the audience how to forecast interest rates. This, yes, this, please. Okay. So we know long-term interest rates are going to, as I showed you, are going to be very dependent on inflation. So let's use an example period here. So I'm going to take June of 2021 through May of 2022. So that's 12 months. Now, each month measures the month-over-month change from one month to another. When you take the 12 months and combine them, you get a core rate of CPI. In this case, in May of 2022, it was 5.8%. Now, interestingly, mortgage rates on 30-year fixed were similar to that. They don't always ride together. They just happen to be here. It's not so much what the change, what the difference is here, but it's the change. When this goes up, mortgage rates go up. When this goes down, mortgage rates go down. Mm. So we understand that. Okay, so now the June number comes out. I just want to do this so everybody understands it. When we got the release for June, we get that in July. We got the release for June of 2022. It was six-tenths of a percent for June. Now, that replaced seven-tenths of a percent for June of 2021. So naturally, when you get a smaller number replacing the higher number, now the new 12 months is going to be lower. So year-over-year CPI went down and mortgage rates went down along with it. Everyone was out there, Robert, saying inflation's peak. You might have recalled all of the, oh, inflation's peak, inflation, Mm -hmm. because they saw this happening. I was one of the lone voices who in hundreds of seminars and presentations and to our subscriber base was saying, no, in fact, my mantra was, and we kind of do a fun song every day with our subscribers, it was cruel, cruel summer. And you know, we said it's going to be a tough summer for rates. Now, how did we know that? Well, I'll tell you how we thought about it first as a in theory, and then what was the real tip that helped us? So uh, audience watching, let's test your skill. So now we in June 
felt that we were going to go higher in rates because inflation was going to go up. Why? Because the Fed just first in June started to get serious with its first 75 basis point rate hike. But nothing happens that day. It's 30 days till you see it in your statement, 60 days till you write a check, and maybe 90 days till you get discouraged on making other purchases. Because if you're in the middle of the purchase, you're probably going to do it. So what do we do? We said supply chain still not open because remember back in the summer of last year, China was shut down, right? So mm-hmm. we said it's going to take until October till those ships in Shanghai start coming. So we felt by October, things would get better. That was going to be released in November. But the October data, we thought would be the first time we'd start to see some relief in inflation. Now, that was a guess, Robert. We, we didn't mm-hmm. know for sure. But one thing we did know for sure, here's what we knew. We knew that when the new data was going to come out over the next few months, over the summer, it was going to replace what? The old data. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking, relatively speaking, you probably already have the answer. But this old data is very what, relatively? It's low, right? If you said that, very good, by the way. So we felt that higher data would replace lower data, driving inflation higher and mortgage, mortgage rates correspondingly move up. Right. And guess what happened? That's exactly what had happened. And so, just for the for the audio listeners, you're highlighting back to July through September 21, and you expected to see something similar in 22, but off of the, the present rate rather than the, the 21 rate. We thought that the 22 months would probably still see persistent inflation in the summer, which we got. Yeah. That was a guess. But one thing we knew for sure was that the 2021 summer inflation numbers were extraordinarily low. And because of that, we felt that higher numbers would replace lower numbers. So therefore, back in June, when everybody said inflation had peaked, we disagreed. Mm. And we thought inflation was going to be persistent. Now, back in June, we also made a call and we said, hey, circle November 10th on your calendar. November 10th was when the October data for CPI was going to be released. And we believed that that would be the first month that we'd start to see the effects of the Fed and supply chain easing inflation. Now, again, that was a guess. But what did we know, Robert? We knew that as the new data beginning November 10th was going to come out, it was going to replace data from 2021. And for you listeners, the data for 2021 was very what, Robert? This was very high data, very very high inflation numbers. So we thought there was a likelihood of low inflation figures for October, November, December would replace high figures for October, November, December of 2021. And that's where we thought rates would come down. And guess what Hmm. happened? To the date, by the way, November 10th, that was the single largest bond rally in three years. So if you were mm-hmm. long bonds, you did very, very well because the market went nuts that day and mortgage rates came down. And as you can see, you've got inflation has come down from 6.7% year over year to now 5.6. That's as of the, today, this recording. And seven and a quarter on mortgage rates has dropped to six and a quarter. So you can see where we are. Okay, now what's in this inflation number, Robert? So what's in, what's in it is shelter, is a big component. In fact, it's 43% of the number of shelter. So what's happening with shelter costs, rents and owner's equivalent rent? Well, the chart here shows they've been coming down. That's real time. So I shouldn't say coming down. They're decelerating. They're certainly not going up as much. Currently, they're mm-hmm. going up at a rate of 3.3% a year. But a year ago, they were going up at 18%. The problem mm-hmm. with data is if you look at the year's data, it encompasses this entire period. Okay, so mm-hmm. Remember, just like in CPI, it gives as much weight to 12-month-old data as it does to one-month-old data. They consider them equal. There is no you know, exponential effect to what's happening today. 
right? Just right. like those of you that do technical analysis, when you look at an exponential moving average, it's more indicative of momentum than a simple moving average, right? So mm -hmm. when we look at this number here and you say 3.3% is what's happening, but in CPI, it's much greater, but it gets worse than that, Robert. Because if you were surveyed, let's say back 10 months ago, 11 months ago, and you said, you know, what was your rent? You may have signed your lease six months, eight months, 10 months before that, and the lease could have still been in effect. Mm -hmm. So this data is really longer than a year old. And when we look at this, it kind of reminds me uh, like a loop in a roller coaster. Now, eventually it comes down, but here's how it's, here's how it's impacting current CPI. This line here shows the impact on CPI. It's showing it rising at almost 8%, 7.9%. It's showing it roughly eight. It's closer to three. And remember, this is 43% of CPI. So this mm. is fictitiously pushing the consumer price index up by more than 2%. And this mm. is what we have to look forward to is this is going to roll over because eventually it catches up, Robert. I mean, eventually you get through, it's like a roller coaster. Eventually you get through the roller coaster, right? And a roller coaster, the apex of the roller coaster, the, the front part of the roller coaster is heading lower, the back part's still going up. So the way that it's reflected in the report is it's still going up. Now examine this with me for a second and you can see first the real time moves and eventually you get that lag effect. Mm. That lag effect might take a year. Here's where we start going up. A year later, we start going up. So it's about a year now since we've had the apex. So I think in the next few months, we're going to get a rollover here and it will mm. start coming down. Now remember, this is going to move slowly, but it'll start coming down. Now here's mm. how we're going to forecast this for us. I have two grids here, two charts here. The top chart is the 2022 values for the first six months of CPI, core. This is what's going to be replaced in the first six months of this year. The bottom chart is the shelter component. So these are the 2022 monthly readings for shelter CPI, which are going to be replaced in the first six months of this year. Now, today- Can, can you, sorry, real quick, and sorry to interrupt your flow. Could you just- decompose those terms for us. I'm familiar with CPI, but less familiar with shelter in CPI. So shelter is made up of three things. It's rent, actual rents. It's owner's equivalent rent, what an owner of a property thinks they can rent it for. Mm -hmm. And it's shelter outside, lodging outside of the home, your Airbnbs, your hotels, things okay. of that. So that's what those three components make up your shelter component. And shelter makes up 43% of core CPI. So it's enormous it. weighting. It's enormous. It's, it's, it's really, mm -hmm. really important. So today, we got the new numbers for CPI. And the bond market didn't love it. The stock market didn't love it. Why? Because they said inflation's coming down, but it's not coming down as much. Now, we were not surprised by this because we took a deeper dive. First of all, if you take a look what January of 2022 was, it was six tenths. Now, Today's number came out at four-tenths, so we did get a drop. It was modest, and people saying inflation is not coming down that fast. Well, here's the reason. Notice the shelter component for 2022 was very, very low. Mm. So we knew that this was going to cause inflation to come down grudgingly. And we told our subscribers this, that you're not going to get the number you want here. It's going to be a slug. You know, We're not going to really get there. But now let's look ahead, Robert, and let's all forecast this together. On March 14th, we will get the February data for 2023, and it's going to replace this data here for February 2022. Now, you see the shelter component was six tenths, so that should be much more cooperative and should not provide a headwind. And the overall inflation number of five tenths 
we should see some improvement there. So I think March 14th, you'll get a good release. Now, on April 12th, we'll get the March 23 readings, which will replace March of 2022. And you could already see the problem here is that the March of 2022 core CPI was relatively low. So we may make little to no progress and all the pundits and talking heads will come out, oh, inflation's not coming down. It's not this. It's not. It is. You just have to be patient to see the result. And that's why mm. the date I want you to circle on your calendar today is May 10th. Mm. And the reason is because beginning May 10th, you will get the April 23 data replacing the data for April of 2022. And just like those two circled areas that I showed you before, Robert, mm -hmm. we're about to enter a third one. And I think we're going to be three for three in our forecast where you're going to see lower numbers replace higher numbers in both shelter hmm. and core CPI. And what this will give you is it will give you the ability to see rates come down at a more accelerated pace. Bond values on the long end should improve. And we will likely be in a scenario where you know, you'll see lower mortgage rates. And I think you'll unleash a horde of buyers into the housing market into a very low inventory scenario. So I think the housing market will benefit. You on know, May, that's May 10th. You That's the that's May 10th. Yes, okay. that's May 10th. So let me ask you, when you say lower numbers replacing higher numbers, higher numbers replacing lower numbers, that's the effect of measuring year over year uh, comparison. So basically, if you had yeah. a low, so there's, there's, below there's, March 21, you'd see a larger delta in March 22 and vice versa if it was high. Okay. Yeah. Remember, there's 12 months in a year over year reading. Mm -hmm. So as new data comes out, it replaces and kicks out the 13-month-old data. Got it. So okay. when your total that you're adding up for the 12 months, you're adding the newest and removing the oldest. Okay. Right. So it's the delta between the new and the old that will cause the year over year change that the market's going to react to. Got it. So it's a little, because it's somewhat of a discrete measure that you're taking 12 samples throughout a year, there can be kind of an outsized effect when you drop one month and add a new month. That's correct. Okay. Got it. Okay. Interesting. And if you have the history and you can kind of have a educated understanding of where we're going, it allows you to effectively understand where we're going with, with, uh, with interest rates because interest rates are going to follow those inflation numbers. Interest rates on the long end, not yeah. short term. Short term rates are going to follow the Fed. Long term rates are going to follow inflation. Got it. Okay. So with that prediction in place, is that when you, that May 10th, 2023 timeframe, that's when you see CPI turning over? Yes. Is that correct? Okay. Yes. I think so, CPI will be on an accelerated decline. Okay. The Fed's given us, they say they want, they want 2% inflation, right? That's what the Fed says their target is. By the way, yeah. they, they pull that out of their ass. There is yeah, nowhere, course. there's no textbook. <laughs> there's nothing yeah. that says we need 2% inflation. Okay. Th right. There's nothing like that. Okay. Right. Let me tell you why the Fed wants 2% inflation. The Fed wants 2% inflation so that they could keep interest rates and justifiably keep interest rates on their Fed funds rate high enough so that should there be an economic distress, they right. have enough right. ammunition to right. cut rates to stimulate the economy sufficiently so that it can then get us out of that downturn. Right. That's why they say 2% inflation. There's nothing magical. There's nothing wrong with prices going down and us saving money. Right. So, yeah. Because the closer you are to the zero bound, the less the less effective their policy tools are. Because you can't, you go. going below the zero bound is just problematic in a lot of ways. And we've seen that all over the world with negative interest rates, which was a bad experiment. And we yeah. see the problems with quantitative easing is unwinding it and the pain of quantitative tightening. Remember, the Fed was printing it in a printing press, but now what they're doing is they're vacuuming it and then incinerating mm -hmm. it. You know, right. our money supply, which you know, Jerome Powell said, 
We have to unlearn everything we've unlearned about money supply. That was a very, very big faux pas of his and why he missed the inflation picture. We do have to understand money supply. Paul Volcker was a great Fed chair and he understood it very, very well. Money supply, you know, it's too many dollars chasing too few goods. Hmm. Money supply is critical. And in 2020 and 2021, close to these numbers, I'm going by memory here, I believe our money supply increased like 22% and 13%, mm. something like that. So yeah, forgive me if I'm so wrong. I had, no, I had around 40% for that period. And that's about so, right. So, yeah. Right. So so now there, there is a natural flow where money supply actually goes up on a year-over-year basis. And I'm looking mm. to see if I have a chart that I can illustrate this better with. So um, give me a second here. Let me see if I can find that chart for you. Um, let me see if I have it. I have it. And I'm going to share my screen so that you can yep. see it. Okay, brother. So there is a natural flow to what happens here. So this is um, ODL, which is a better measurement of money supply. And when we take a look which at is ODL, other deposits at all commercial banks. Okay. Yes, that's exactly right. So you can see there's kind of a natural increase. It kind of moves up. And in red is what I drew. I drew just a natural trend line. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the pandemic response and the, and the, and the recession response that preceded it caused this enormous growth. But we, for the first time ever, it's a record, we saw the money supply shrink by 2%, 1.8% in 2022. But it was all in the fourth quarter. Money supply was growing. It all came out in the fourth quarter. In January of 2023 alone, we saw this drop 7%. At this pace of quantitative tightening, we will get back to trends sometime middle of this year, which will be very, very much a neutralizer of inflationary forces. So we will start to see deflationary forces, recession. This is a very important thing to look at is this ODL, the money supply. Hmm. And it's a critical element in understanding where inflation is going, which again, helps you to uh, to understand where long-term rates are going. So do you think we're returning to that trend line? Is that- I do. Okay. I do. Wow. So that's a pretty aggressive quantitative tightening we're facing. It is very aggressive. Yeah. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? (laughs) So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. 
this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Element. Element is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. Element contains the ideal electrolyte ratio. It's got 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element has no junk. It's got no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS at all. Element is perfectly suited for people that are on a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. And as someone that eats a very heavy meat diet and does a lot of intermittent fasting, I simply love this stuff. So go to drinkelement.com slash breedlove. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash breedlove. And make sure to get a free sample pack with your first purchase. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. What should we be doing with this information? We get a little bit into the technical weeds here. I think most people watching this are probably thinking, okay, like housing, is it a bubble? Is it not a bubble? Will it be a bubble? Is this different than 2007, 2008? If, if so, how, um, how would you, um, enlighten people on that? Yeah. Well, well, I I believe this. I'm not going to be anybody financial advice here. Okay. I'm just telling you what what markets I think should perform well. I think long-term bonds should perform well, because if you have a long-term bond at a higher rate and rates decline from there, Mm -hmm. Your value, you make money not just on yield, but you, you get appreciation value. Mm-hmm. I think that the stock market, you have to be very careful because if you were to take a look by most models, the S&P 500, somewhere around 4,100 or so, I don't know the exact number where it is right now, mm-hmm. maybe a target might be 3,300 based upon previous recessions. I believe firmly we're, we're headed for a recession, firmly mm-hmm. we are. So, um, and then this financial tightening, Will I, I will accelerate that? You see the money supply. Mm-hmm. Okay, when the money supply, when there's too much money, it goes into assets like stocks and things like that. It pushes right. higher. When, when you, you drain money, you know you, you're not going to see it go into those assets. So I believe that just be careful. Uh, housing, I think, is is an opportunity right now. I know people think I'm crazy sometimes with this stuff, but you know we we called the exact bottom of the housing market. But by the way, I haven't always been a, a housing bull. Uh, right. Back in 2007, I thought the housing market was in trouble. 
I sold my business that was in it because I felt it was mm -hmm. in trouble and created another company to help people understand how they should protect themselves from that. So uh, I, when, when I see a problem in the housing market, I'll tell you there's a problem, but you know, the housing market right now, I believe is an opportunity that's going to increase in value, not decrease in value. Hmm. So I know that that's very contrary and it's very easy for the media to jump all over. It's oh, housing's in trouble. I mean, I could show you some reasons why I've got some charts that kind of can dispel any, any myths about why there's a bubble. And well, let's talk about it a bit. Cause so you're, you're, predicting, I guess, a sell-off in risk assets with this quantitative tightening that is happening. Yes. But you, I guess you're saying that real estate will not be treated that way? It will just won't be treated as risk-on asset? Real estate's very different. You know, yeah. if I sell a stock, I don't have to buy another one. But in most right. cases, if I sell a home, I need to live somewhere. Right. So that's going to create a, a demand on housing. Housing, yeah. you have to look at the supply and demand equation like you do in anything else in economics, mm -hmm. right? Supply and demand will give you price discovery. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you uh, measure supply in housing? You measure it by builders completing homes and putting them on the market. But then you have to shave off about 100,000 of those a year because homes age, they have to be replaced. Mm -hmm. So builders have to build about 100,000 more homes in demand. Now, how do you measure demand? Demand is measured by household formations. So what's a household formation? Mom, dad, child. They live in one household. At some point in, that in time, that child grows up and gets their own place. When they do, it's the same family unit. It's mom, dad, and child. However, they now have two households instead of one. They mm -hmm. have formed a household. Mm -hmm. Household formation is demand. Household completions is supply. And it's different. So when analysts look at housing, they say, oh, it's going to go down because it's gone up. Or not so easy. Because you have to look at the supply and demand equation. Certainly, demand is going to be levered by interest rates, right? Mm -hmm. And if you believe, like I do, that inflation is coming down, interest rates are coming down. And when interest rates come down, you increase the pool of available of, of people that now can be in the demand area. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. For every 1% drop in interest rates, 5 million more people, not saying they will do it, 5 million more people become eligible. And that's right. why recessions help housing, don't hurt housing. Because if in a recession, you see a 1% increase in the rate of unemployment, that's roughly one and a half million people that at least temporarily won't be home buyers, but you have 5 million more people that can be home buyers. Got so it. it just overwhelms the amount of people that get adversely affected by recession. Got it. So you think rates then will be, the Fed's going to start cutting rates? I don't think the Fed cuts rates for a while, but I think yeah. long in the market will come down. I think that mortgage rates get to 5% by mid-year around there. You know, give me a month on either side or two right. of that. But yeah, uh, I think inflation drops, driving long-term rates down. And then there's a natural re response between the 10-year treasury and mortgage rates. It's typically about one and three quarters to 2%. That's the, you know, we can get wonky and I could show you what's happened here, but it's gotten out of whack. It's gone to a, an extreme level. And that's because the value of a mortgage includes something called servicing. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody holds a mortgage. It's too risky to hold it. If you gave me a mortgage at 3%, a year later, rates go to six, you'd be losing a ton of money. So you don't right. hold that risk. So you, uh, you offload that risk. You sell it in the secondary market. Um, but and that's the Fannie still, Mae and Freddie buying most of those. Bingo. bingo. Yeah, and, okay. and they, they don't just buy them. They aggregate them and then they sell it on wall street. Who ultimately owns it is everybody listening on this call. If you look in your mutual funds, 401ks, IRAs, insurance, it's it's in there. So we, right. the public, assume that risk. But what's happening, though, is that that mortgage still needs to be serviced, what's mm -hmm. called a servicer. 
somebody's got to collect the payments, pay the taxes for real estate, the uh, insurance, pay, uh, pay, they'll tell you, tell you, send you a note if you're late. They mm-hmm. have to answer your questions. So they get a fee for that. So that gets built into the value of a mortgage is that fee. So what what happens is is that the longer the expected life of the mortgage, because remember that fee's got to be set at time of closing. So you estimate how long that mortgage is going to be alive for mm-hmm. to calculate how many times you're going to get paid that fee for doing that work. So if it's typically measured four, five, six years, that fee's big. But what happened was the servicing value got sucked out of it because at seven and a quarter percent, the smartest money in the world said, wait a minute, these seven and a quarter percent mortgages are going to be refinanced quickly. So therefore they assigned a very small servicing value because they estimated rates coming down. And that made the spread because value goes down, yield goes up. Remember, it's like a seesaw with, mm-hmm. with, with uh, bonds, right? Mm-hmm. As a bond price rises, the rate goes down and vice versa. Yeah. So as the bond value decreased for left servicing, the yield shot up. And that's why mortgage rates disproportionately rose compared to the 10-year treasury. So we we saw mortgage rates rise 3% above the 10-year. In 35 years, that's never happened. But now it's already reduced to about 2.6. And as yields on the 10-year continue to come down, we'll get to a normal spread. 10 years going to two and a half to three, mortgage rates will be four and a half to five. And that means you're going to unleash a horde of buyers on a super light inventory environment. And that's going to create a lot of pressure. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. And then for those that are spooked, perhaps 2007, 2008, they're sitting on the sidelines waiting for a crash to come in and and buy real estate at a discount. What data is making you think that that is not a possibility this time around? There's no crash, nothing even close to it. In fact, we're already starting to see a turn and there are in certain markets, multiple offers. Let me show you why. Um, and, and if it's okay with you, it's, it's just easier to see it, right? Absolutely. So, please. I, I'm going to show. So first of all, why isn't there a recession? Well, Robert, it's being staved off by people jacking up their credit cards pre recession. Mm. Here's where we were. You get recession and pandemic. Uh, my savings rate before the recession was close to 10%, but I got a big stimulus check. So now my savings rate went way up. And what did I do? I paid off my credit cards. Mm. Now, the stimulus money was burning a hole in my pocket. So I spent it. I bought things. I liked the you know fancier designer names. And then I got another stimmy. But this time I spent it much faster than the first one. So still don't have a credit card balance. And a lot of things aren't even open yet. And then I got another stimmy. But this time I spent it even faster. And this was a bigger check. So now I'm out of stimulus. What do I want to do? I want to keep the party going. So I'm jacking up my credit cards way above the previous record high. And I'm draining my savings account. But even this has an expiration date. And that's when you're going to hit the wall and have a recession because this can't continue. 10% savings rate before pandemic, 3.5% now. And if we have a recession, what happens to mortgage rates? They go down. Here, the last one by 1% then more, more than 1% then more, almost 1% Mm -hmm. then more, 2.25% then more, 5%, 4%. Mortgage rates go down during recessions. What's the effect on real estate? Eight out of nine recessions, real estate values rose. What happened here? Aside from the crazy products you don't have, no income, no asset, job optional. You know, mm-hmm. what's what's the what's the the mortgage application was? Do you have a pulse or could you fog up this mirror? You're approved. Okay. Right. We don't have any of those right now. <laughs> so let's understand this. I explained the supply and demand equation. This shows it to you. Two the last 20 years, the blue line household formations, which I explained, mm-hmm. the gold bar builders completing homes and putting them up as inventory. Notice in 2004, mm-hmm. 2005, it was close. Builders have to build a little bit more because of the homes that get retired. But in 2006, something crazy happened. Builders built more homes than ever, 2 million. We've not even built anything close to that today. But look at household formations, Robert. It fell Mm. off a cliff and then dropped again. They stayed low and then went up. 
you want to know why the housing market's so good right now, too much household formation, not enough mm -hmm. homes. That's why inventory is so low. So right. what the heck happened here? So the question is, can this happen again? So we have to analyze this. What caused the median age of a first-time home buyer is 33? Mm -hmm. So what caused this drop in 33-year-old activity? Well, maybe it was birth rates. So 2006, 33 years before that is 1973. Here's a birth chart. Notice the corresponding drop in mm. births 33 years before. It's a, mm. it's a hand in glove. Look at this, Robert. Big drop in 1973, right. drop in 74, stays low, goes up. Let me show you the previous chart. Drop, drop, stays low, goes up. It's amazing, right? right? Well, stands to reason. Demographics are destiny, right? Bingo. That's exactly yeah. right, man. So, so, Robert, what caused this? There's a reason. So, please, if you're listening, I'm not offering any opinion on this. Don't get crazy on me. I'm just giving you statistics. In 1973, abortions legalized. Therefore, birth mm -hmm. rates dropped the next year because it takes nine months to have a, a pregnancy. It filters through to the next year. And then you get a flattening out in birth rates. Finally, it goes up. So now where are we in 2023? That 33-year-old in 2023 was born in 1990. Look at the birth rates for 1990. Very different story. Yeah. So there's right. more demand. And, and you know, this, this, don't worry about this. This is just some headlines that the media puts out there. Mm -hmm. But I want to show you inventory. It looks like inventory is going up in the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. People say, be careful of that. But it comes down every single year. Why? Because of schools. Kids, if they come in the middle of the school year, it's tough on them with friends. It's tough on them with getting picked on. And it's tough on them with catching up because curriculum is different. Mm -hmm. Parents want their kids to start at the beginning of the school year. So that's why you have to be in your home by August. So you got to be June, July, and August. You got to move in. So you got to sell your home when? During the spring months, April, May, June. And then it comes back down in the inventory. Every year it happens. Mm. So you asked the question about the 2007. Do you know there was 4 million units in inventory in 2007? 4 million. Today, 970,000. Oh, wow. We have 30 million more people in this country, Robert, fighting for 3 million fewer homes. This is wow. a bubble. This you cannot know. be a bubble here, Robert. This Got is impossible. It. But look at this. 970,000 homes doesn't even tell the full picture because of those 244,000 are already under contract. I can't buy them. They're off the market. They're closing in a mm -hmm. week or two weeks or three weeks. There's only 626,000 homes for sale. That's half of what we're accustomed to, and it's just not enough. So I know people talk about foreclosures. Foreclosures went up because the last two years, you don't have a moratorium. The amount of foreclosures are half of what it was in a normal year and 5% of what it was in a bad year. Equity mm. in homes today is 58%. In 2008, it was 19%. There's gotcha. just too much equity in homes. I've got one for affordability if you want to talk about affordability, but that pretty much kind of sums up no, that, what we're experiencing today. Yeah, no, that's really good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so housing market looks strong. To All, me, yeah. I think that the housing market will have modest gains over the next year. I'm not looking for 40%, right. 3%, 4%, but I can buy a home over the next month or two, probably at a 2% discount. 2% discount compared to a 3% gain, that's 5% in aggregate on a $500,000 home. It's a lot of money. Yeah, okay. The recession then that you anticipate we're going into, can you help paint the picture of that? Like what, what, Aside from the housing market, just looking at the overall economy, what are what is the data? I guess that's leading you to believe we're actually heading into a recession. And what do you what type of recession do you think this is in terms of like duration, severity, specific classes? I assume this would be more of a sell off in equities, um, another risk on assets, things like that. Well, peak to trough equities on average drop about 35, 36%. Doesn't mean that that's what it's going to be. The last two were closer to 50%. So, yeah. so, so look, all I would say is just 
please be on guard. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the drop would be, uh, but just please, you know, proceed carefully is what mm-hmm. I would say. Um, you know, the, the, um, S and P, um, CEOs are also very cautious about this and they're forecasting that, you know, they're bracing for a recession. They're anticipating a recession. Everybody's seeing a slowdown, mm-hmm. um, that they're feeling it is not gain momentum and recessions tend to mirror their expansions and the expansion was relatively mild. So the recession should be relatively mild and recessions mm-hmm. probably aren't They're not going to be forever. What's it going to be six, seven months. So, mm-hmm. and then you have recovery. So is it the worst thing in the world? No, it's not the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Just go through that period of time with caution. That's all. Mm-hmm. That's the smart thing to do would be to be cautious, see it coming, go in eyes wide open and, and take precautionary measures. And when you say be careful, I assume this means low debt, high liquidity. I mean, what we see in a lot of S and P companies, right? They're sitting on a ton of cash. Um, but it's a funny thing about this. It seems like everyone is anticipating some form of recession and then holding some liquidity on the sidelines. And in my, you know, somewhat limited experience in markets, I'm only mid thirties. Every time everyone's anticipating that one thing, that one thing doesn't seem to happen. So you're, you're, I don't see how it can't this time, but you know, I guess what else would you say about precautionary measures in terms of, is it just being liquid, low debt, et cetera? What else? Well, it's interesting that you, what you said earlier is that, you know, one of Bob Farrell's rules of investing, when everybody sees it one way, usually the opposite happens. You know, not mm-hmm. always, but usually yeah. uh, this is one where I agree with the, with the overall consensus, it just mm. appears to be um, the and the real reason for it is the is the tightening of monetary policy that we're experiencing mm-hmm. and the Fed's reluctance to be able to drive this boat, this ship, or car mm-hmm. looking through the windshield. They're mm-hmm. driving looking at the rearview mirror. How many times have you had heard the Fed say data dependent? Well, data is inherently delayed. I showed you data for mm-hmm. CPI how much it lags. So I'm trying to set policy that won't have an impact until three months later, till that impact's felt. Yet I'm basing the decision of what's going to be felt in three or four months from now, based upon what happened six months ago or four months right. ago or a year ago. It's why we typically have boom cycles and bust cycles. There is not, look, the Fed's human beings. And right mm-hmm. now, Jerome Powell is probably going to go down as one of the worst, if not the worst Fed chair. He does not want to make the, let's call it a mistake, mm-hmm. of allowing inflation to do what it did in the 70s. And he's paying very close attention to where inflation appeared to be tamed, but then it came up for a second time. Mm-hmm. That was Fed Chair Arthur Burns before Paul Volcker. But it's also a mistake to tighten too far, right? So mm-hmm. the, he's looking at, I don't want to make this one mistake, and I'll be more likely to make the other mistake than the same mistake. So I'll make a new mistake instead of the same one. Both are bad. But what it seems is that he is determined to not pay attention to the things we discussed on this call, how CPI is rolling over, how inflation is tame, how we're seeing these slowdowns, what is keeping Hmm. the consumer alive is wearing off. He doesn't want to pay attention to those. He just does not want to make the same mistake twice. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So to be cautious, one should be liquid and low debt going into these potentially recessionary conditions yet based on one of those dry powder. Yeah. Dry powder. But one of those charts you just showed 
showed how much credit card utilization was up and savings were down. So doesn't that add a lot more fragility to any potential recession uh, and that people can get pushed into pretty desperate measures pretty quickly? Yeah, I agree. I, I completely agree. And and that's one of the reasons for you know a recession being more likely is because I, I'm tapping my savings, I'm maxing my credit cards. How much more can I get pushed? Right? Yeah. How, how much more do I have to go before my buying decisions start to have an impact on the stores that are accustomed to me as a customer? Mm-hmm. So it's less dinners out, it's less clothes, it's less name brands. It's like, you're going to be giving up a lot of those things that people have been accustomed to doing because they're now maxed out. Mm-hmm. And that's how recession begins. And that's how recession turns. And I believe we're starting to see the impact of that already. Now, I mentioned dry powder earlier, and you're right. You want to have some cash available because if asset prices come down and become more affordable, that's probably a good time to, to grab it, right? You want to, you want to take advantage of that opportunity. So I think there will be opportunities that present themselves that you want to be able to pounce on. Mm-hmm. And I think there's places that you can hide right now in the interim, like the long end of the bond market, that can offer you very, very good returns as we head there. You know, I'm not going to tell people to go short on equities, but sure. you know, potentially, you know, if someone were more um, less risk adverse and were wanted to maybe hedge their positions, they may want to may want to put some some protective measures, you know, some puts on their holdings or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. So, so all I'm just saying is just understand that. If you believe in history, maybe not exactly repeating itself, as Mark Twain said, but rhyming, you more than likely will see asset prices on the overall indices have some some more. There's more of a likelihood that they move lower than they move. You know, a thousand points lower is a lot less right. resistance than a thousand points higher. On the S&P. Got it. And this the data dependent Federal Reserve decision making that you describe. Obviously, they're looking at CPI. They're obviously looking at unemployment as well. So do you think there is a threshold of unemployment that's going to cause them to pivot and start cutting rates aggressively again? Or what are you, if you're trying to predict the moves of the Fed, what pieces of data are they looking at through that rearview mirror? And and, and, and to what extent are they weighting them? Well, they're, they're certainly looking at job creations and the unemployment rate, and they're looking at the lack of slack in the economy. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of measurements for job openings, but be careful with that because like the JOLTS report, you know, with work from anywhere, you can have multiple job postings for the same job in different markets. So mm-hmm. you might pick up multiple job openings. So don't go 100% by that. But look, there is a labor shortage here. Okay, there, there is. There's a labor shortage here. And it's not an easy solution because we do have baby boomers um, that have retired early, especially through COVID. And, and look, let's face it, the ugly part of it is how many people died during COVID that were mm-hmm. part of the labor force. You know, that's something mm-hmm. a lot, not, not a lot of people talk about. It's not mm-hmm. nice to talk about, but we know that during the, during the, the, what happened with COVID, we, we lost a lot of our labor force. Then. Yeah. Uh, so, um, death and handicap, you know, yes. we, we did an episode with Ed Dowd that'll be coming out soon, but those numbers are very high. I think it's close over a million, closer to 2 million people. Yeah. I agree with you hundred percent. And then yeah. there's, you know, people that suffer from long COVID effects, right? So mm-hmm. We know that all these things are hindering the labor force, but will this improve over time? It will as youth starts to kind of mature into replacing some of those positions, but also technology. Uh, Technology will replace a lot of jobs and it Mm -hmm. will create a little more slack. It just takes time, Robert. It's just Mm -hmm. these things, 
the transitions like this take time. I mean, you know, I, I was one of the people where five or six years ago when I was hearing about autonomous driving, I was like, well, how are you going to have autonomous drive? But now it's a reality. Okay. Mm -hmm. And th those are replacing jobs. I was reading this morning about autonomous tractors on farms coming out. And this, yeah. there will be lots of jobs that get replaced through technology and technology that we haven't even imagined yet. That's right. going to come out at a more exponential pace. So mm -hmm. 10 years from now, we're going to be looking at a much different environment. And here's another thing that's very interesting. And I know that you know, it's something that fascinates us is, is longevity. But mm. there is likely going to be breakthroughs that come out in the next 10 years for longevity that will make it not uncommon to live well past 100 years old. Hmm. So what does that mean? People will be staying in the labor force more. So I think that over time in the next decade, this tight labor market will alleviate itself. Mm -hmm. um, but for now, in the here and now, yes, we do have a tight labor market. Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, technology is definitely increasing productivity very rapidly but there has been a very quick squeeze on labor over the past couple of years. Um, I, I am concerned a little bit too about breakdowns in global trade. Like if we get more tariffs, more isolationism, that could be another uh, downward pressure on productivity. And it's hard to say, right? Because technology is so unpredictable. You don't know how, how much it's going to unlock versus these, let's say geopolitical um, headwinds that we're facing as well. Uh, okay, man, you've just been an absolute wealth of knowledge. Um, I guess one last just kind of general, maybe philosophical question to some extent. All of this that we're talking about, like the, the bottom of all of this is the central planning of money, right? That we have, we have socialism in the money, if you will. To what extent do you think we could not have to deal with some of these problems or not have to like, there's so much weight on Jerome Powell's shoulders, for instance, right? One guy making decisions, obviously not in isolation, but one guy assisted by a few other guys and girls making decisions that impact 8 billion humans. Whereas if we didn't have central banking kind of as the dominant institution in the world, not so much pressure would be on so few people. How do you just think about that philosophically? I mean, um, is there a better way to do what we're doing today with, with the market for money? I think there is. Um, you know, when you take a look at the Fed, 19 members that between 19 people, they are responsible for the price, the most important price in the world, and that's the price of money. Mm -hmm. So, and they also have this power with the balance sheet now to print it. Theoretically, it's not actual printing, but mm -hmm. to, to create it. Mm -hmm. And like they're doing now, they're vacuuming it up and incinerating it. So, they have enormous power. And when you like, look at some of the backgrounds of these individuals, it's it's mostly government or just at the Fed or just government, the Fed and academic for the vast majority of mm -hmm. them. That, you know, when 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 I, I told you about, you were nice enough to ask, you know, some of the things I've done in my career. And, you know, I look back and I say, well, it's given me a different lens. It's given me a lens to take pages from people's books like you mm -hmm. and I talked about, mm -hmm. right? And learn from others. Uh, so whether it was in entertainment, whether it was in healthcare, whether it was in mortgage or real estate or in understanding the financial markets, all of those things help to provide perspective. And I feel that there's a lack of perspective on some of the abilities of, of Fed members. I don't believe that they intend to do any harm. I believe that they right. just are to some degree, and they admit this, they lack some understanding in how to mm. do this. So 
Um, and it's amazing to me because they have resources that are amazing. You know, 500 uh, economists that are that are part of underneath those 19 Fed members that they can get information and data from. It's just surprising to me that there is so much data dependency and less of a real-time understanding of what's going on. And so it's easy mm -hmm. for all of us to criticize them. Mm -hmm. So let's understand that it's a hard job to do, but they're their record in the past has not been wonderful. And I think that a better way to do it would be to drive by looking through the windshield as opposed to the rearview mirror. And that's data dependency that they keep touting. We've got to be data right. dependent. Well, that tells me you're going to be making mistakes. So is it almost a fool's errand to try and plan this whole thing? I mean, should, should we not just leave it up to market forces? Like let the interest rate be a uh product of price discovery, just like every other commodity in the world? Well, to some extent, the Fed is charged with price stability, but price stability is flat prices, zero prices. So they pull mm -hmm. out of their ass this 2%, right? Mm -hmm. so 2%, why do they have that? They have 2% rate of inflation because in a in an area where the Fed's supposed to act, the reason the Fed was created, right, which is J.P. Morgan and others were were bailing banks out mm -hmm. because they were run on banks and there was distress. The Fed's supposed to, in a distressful situation, help the economy get on stable footing. One of the ways they do that is by cutting rates. If the inflation rate is zero, the Fed funds rate corresponding to that would have to be so low that there wouldn't be enough cuts, there wouldn't be enough ammunition to be stimulative to the economy. Mm. So they put this 2% out there, not because they want prices to go up at 2%, because it will justify a Fed funds rate in that 4% mm. range you know, or so, so that they now have enough ammunition to create enough monetary stimulus to create activity that will get the economy right on, on a right foot. You know, So right. again, I don't envy their job. And it's easy to be critical, but people should understand some of the rationale as to why they're doing what they're doing, right. uh, just, just so we can understand what's the main function of the Fed. I don't think it should be managing politics, the stock market, and I don't even think it should be in employment. I think if you want to keep inflation at a reasonable level, then that's the only focus because it can contradict with maximum employment, that dual mandate. And there's really a third one with the stock market that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny how that mandate kind of changes over time too. As they become more involved in the economy, it, it seems like one of their their emergent mandates is to uphold equity values, right? Yes. Where everyone's got all of their retirement invested, um, which obviously contradicts the intended apolitical nature of the central bank. Like once you're you're clearly very political once you're doing that. So a hundred percent, and it also provides another problem. And that problem is short-term benefit, which just postpones long-term pain. Right. Whereas in some cases, as potentially, you know, I, I don't mean this to be without a, a kind heart, because I'm a very kind person. Sometimes you have to endure a little bit of short-term pain. Mm -hmm. So you don't put the pain on your, your you know, tomorrow or your That's kids right. or whatever, you know, yeah. sometimes you just have to go through those periods of time, but you, you have you know, it creates hazards that are moral as well, because if you mm -hmm. know you're always going to get bailed out, you're more prone to make mistakes that that uh, right. you don't learn lessons from either. You know, so I'd, yeah. I'd rather see the central bank be willing to endure a little bit more, you know, short term disruptions as opposed to always, you know, pampering uh, the the markets in, in a short term.
Yeah. Yeah. Letting capitalism run its course to some extent. I love capitalism. Yeah. Okay. One last philosophical question, if you don't mind, and I will let you run. I have to ask you because I think you're a brilliant guy. Um, Thank you. the, The namesake of the show here, the what is money show. What is money to you? How do you think about it? If you're just describing it to a five-year-old, you know, how do you, how do you unpack the concept of money, uh, in a very general sense? So when I, when I, you know, you first think about what money is, is it allows you to, to get what you need in a way that's common Mm -hmm. and in a way that you can rely upon. So if I have a need for something, you know, back when bartering was, was it really, it really wasn't very effective. So mm. uh, I, I need a, a common thing that I can exchange a method of exchange so I can obtain the things that I need and provide things that others need. So that's basically what this is, right? So mm. if I can do that in a way that a, I could believe in, and you know, that's if, if you believe in fiat currency, um, to the extent that you have faith in receiving it for your service or paying it for the service of others. Uh, and that it also creates some sort of a store of, of value if you're keeping it so that it, it has some value. Of course, there's going to be other factors that affect it. And, and that's really what money is supposed to do. Money mm. is supposed to allow me to get the stuff I need and get um, rewarded for the stuff I provide so that I can then exchange that for more. So it's, it's, this, it's this exchange mechanism. Mm-hmm. To me, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, but it's clearly far more complicated and way above what I can potentially articulate. No, I think that's a great job. Like you're highlighting the functional qualities of money. And I, it also speaks to maybe like the trade-off central banks are making. They're kind of compromising that store of value function in, in an attempt to manage economic downturns and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's well said. Uh, Barry, Man, this has been an absolute dynamite conversation. I appreciate all the data, the deep thinking you've done around these admittedly complex and abstract topics for a lot of people. It seems like you've got quite the art form bringing it down to earth, and that is much appreciated by a lot of people, I am sure. Um, for my audience, could you please let them know where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, real easy is Instagram. I am Barry Habib. That's very, very easy. I respond to it. You can certainly look me up on and, and, and LinkedIn, but uh, I am Barry Habib on Instagram. That's that's usually the best way. Follow me there. I do a lot of reels and a lot of short videos. We should do one together, my brother. And, yeah. uh, and listen, I want to just tell you, I appreciate you. And uh, thank you for allowing me the ability and the time to uh, to share some ideas with your amazing audience. And, and those of you that took the time to listen, let me tell you something. I am so honored that you took the time to spend with me. Your, your time is very valuable. Your attention is even more valuable. So um, I hope that I've done a, a, a good job in making your time worthwhile. You certainly have, uh, at least from my little perspective here. Barry, thank you so much. We'll do this again sometime. God bless, brother. Thank you.